electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, a blizzard hits Wall Street. Snowflake surging in its public debut. Was the year's biggest IPO priced all wrong? Plus, maxed out. Congress slamming Boeing in a new report on the 737 MAX. But the stock soared. Could this be a sign that the bottom is in for Boeing? And later, DraftKings taking the crown today. Thanks to one giant deal, we'll bring you all the details. We start off with the Fed staying put. Jerome Powell signaling to the market today that rates will stay near zero through 2023. Stocks getting an initial pop following the Fed announcement, but reverse course as the Fed chair took questions from the press. Let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, what was it, do you think, that spooked the markets? You know, it, it's always hard to know. Maybe one of those sell the news things. I mean, there was a bit of history in the statement where the Fed for the first time put in the statement that it is new goal is to seek inflation above 2%. That was in the long-term policy strategy, um, but it had not yet been in the statement. This is the first statement following that change. But look, it was a bit like there was nothing behind it in the sense that um, in the question that I asked, I said, well, how come your, goal, your, your forecast don't show you hitting the goal, not even in the four-year horizon here? And, and the Fed chair didn't really have a very good answer for that. So you would think if you said, oh, you know, I'm going to move this tanker faster, you know, you'd be pushing the throttle down. But the Fed didn't really do that at all. It just said our intention is to go faster, but we're not doing anything about it. The market might have been disappointed that there wasn't any actual policy substance behind the new policy. You know, Steve, what jumped out at me was the, the language in the statement. And I don't know if I want to use your metaphor, but the fact that the, the Fed didn't say that it needs to hit that goal, it needs to hit that speed, but it just needs to be on track to see that inflation target as opposed to sustainably hit that inflation target. And that to me seemed maybe a touch more hawkish because they're saying that being above 2%, just, we just need to be on track for it. We don't need to actually hit it and sustainably maintain it. We just need to see it. I mean, it could be in the sense that it's, I wouldn't say it's hawkish, because overall I'd say, Melissa, the development is very, very dovish, and that the Fed now saying in its statement that it's aiming for a policy, of a target above 2%. And also, by the way, in that same statement, forecasting 0.1% interest rates until 2023. I don't know, what's the next color after green in terms of giving stocks a green light, you know? Uh, you, you can't get much greener than that, I guess. Um, but the idea being that there's not any additional policy. The Fed didn't come out with new QE. It didn't come out with uh, new, new plans to get there. It's just going to be a bit of the same old, same old. So I think what happened was maybe that new policy didn't really resonate very much in terms of uh, in the market, in terms of, hey, this is something new. It's the same old, same old. They're not hitting the old policy, and now they're not going to hit the new one. Steve, unbelievable job. I love your Twitter feed today. I'll ask you a question I've sort of asked before. I mean, there, are, there is inflation out there. I mean, BK is going to talk about a commodity that's been exploding over the last year. And, 
you know, inflation is in places that we don't really talk about. And again, I, I ask you the question about a weakening U.S. dollar, albeit a dollar that has bounced recently. Again, I understand it's not the Fed's purview, but at what point do they become concerned that their actions or their rhetoric or their vocabulary language, whatever you want to use, is um, weakening the dollar to a point where, you know, it might become a problem? You know, Guy, um, I have a hard time sort of processing the dollar weakening or strengthening as a problem. Uh, we probably disagree on that. But what I see is a very dynamic U.S. economy that is geared toward being to benefiting from a strong dollar and geared toward benefiting for a weak dollar. I think the dollar has been very strong for a period of time. I think now it's a period of time when it's weaker. I wouldn't say that the U.S. is going to lose its exalted position or its special position as being the reserve currency in the world anywhere close to that. I don't see anybody uh, uh, challenging that at all, not the yuan, not the euro, certainly. So I, I wouldn't worry about that. I think it, you're right. It is inflationary. Uh, but I think the Fed perhaps wants that. I think there are some companies that are going to benefit from that weaker dollar. I think the U.S. has a hedge you win, tails you lose on the dollar because it's the reserve currency. Steve, always good to get your take. Thank you. Pleasure. Steve Leesman, um, what do the markets look like? What do valuations look like with rates near zero until 2023? Through 2023, I should clarify. Tim. Well, you know, I, Steve's looking for another color of green. So um, I think ultimately uh, valuations are allowed to go higher when you can forecast zero interest rates out to 23. In fact, I think 24, because if you talk about some of the dissension, um, it, it probably at least at today's uh, averaging back, you're probably 2024. I think what's important about the Fed policy that is starting to become uh, clear and also very equity positive is that the Federal Reserve is, is essentially allowing for uh, fiscal policy to follow through and they're essentially financing it. So financing this deficit is really what the Fed is doing. Um, they're monetizing uh, the balance sheet of, of the government. And that is something that may lead to more fiscal and certainly can give the context of, of being uh, accepting of one to two trillion dollar deficits um, add ons to the deficit uh, in the current environment, which have people concerned. But but ultimately, again, paves the way for fiscal, which will be equity bonanza. Uh, what was interesting about the price action today, we, we talked about how the market essentially closed on the lows, uh, the the, the NASDAQ lost 175 basis points from essentially the Fed announcement and then the Powell conference. Uh, but there were some assets that rallied, notably commodities, notably oil. Oil rallied two and a half percent. So anything that is attached to asset price inflation, maybe it's the theme of our show today because uh, Brian's going to talk about it. Guy referenced it. Um, I think we have a lot of that. And, and I think it continues to push for the outperformance of industrials, transports and, and that part of the market that is going to benefit from asset price inflation. So does that mean that the growth trade, Brian Kelly, the tech trade, uh, may have seen its best days? It looks that way. Yeah, it certainly looked that way today. Um, you know, and, and tech was actually quite weak going into this. But from what I, when I read the Fed, basically what happened today is there was no new information. So the Fed had already said, listen, we're going to shoot for above 2% inflation. The market priced that in. So today, they didn't really give us anything else. And... They said, you really need fiscal stimulus. Well, fiscal stimulus has been a real problem. I mean, we, we don't have it yet. I don't know if we're going to get it. It was not even a fortnight ago that I mentioned that was my biggest concern for the market. So I think the market has to digest that and we head lower. But to Tim's point, it was interesting to see 
commodities do well today. To me, that's pricing in the Fed is going to do more in the future, but it's not going to be economy supportive. It's going to be commodity supportive. Mm. Steve Grasso, what was your take? Yeah, so, so my take, obviously, I've been uh, sort of weighing the options of, of getting longer on the value proposition and selling my growth. And I, I think to Tim's point, energy, financials, industrials, materials, that's what ran. Now, when I look at, uh, I'm just reading from, uh, from, the, from uh, uh, Chairman Powell's statement, he said the central bank is satisfied with the current size and shape of his asset purchase program. That to me means that it's, they're not going to do any more uh, right now. So he's trying to thread the needle. He's got to say, we're growing, we're, we're, the market is coming back, the economy is coming back, but it's not too fast, so we have to keep rates where they are. But rates aren't going any lower. Now, I understand, where could they go? But the fact of the matter is people are getting tired of buying the same old 20 names in the tech complex, and I think you're starting to see that real value proposition start to work. Guy, um, I'm curious, underneath your question is the implication, perhaps, and, and tell me if I'm reading this incorrectly, that your purchasing power may be decreasing because of the weakening dollar at a time when uh, the price of things like food and gasoline, things that everyday people buy, uh, is increasing. You read it 100% right, Mel. You know, listen, We've been doing this a long time together. You know the way I think. And listen, I don't think I need to say it, but for those watching for the first time, I am no fan of central bankers, and specifically I'm no fan of our Federal Reserve. And whether they acknowledge it or not, their policies have led to a dollar that's been dwindling away over the last, listen, over the last few months. Clearly, it's bounced recently. And I think that's problematic. So there is inflation. You just don't realize it's there. If they were to actually measure it with all the different metrics out there, especially a weakening dollar, especially asset prices, especially things that BK is going to talk about later, I would submit inflation is well north of 2%. So as long as they are able to continue to move the goalpost and not having any negative effect on the market, they're in the driver's seat. I mentioned one thing, though, Mel, when the market made an all-time high back in February of, I think, 33.93, if you recall, the first time, VIX was trading 14-ish. Now we're obviously at all-time highs. The VIX is almost twice that. That, to me, is somewhat problematic because you've had a ridiculous uh, Federal Reserve along the way, and you have a VIX that's doubled. Something's going on here, and I, and I think it's going to come home to roost sooner rather than later. Tim, it looked like you are gearing up to take issue with Guy's uh, thesis. Well, I, I, actually, I don't have a lot of issue, and I may be uh, sharing in some of his passion here. I, I, I don't, I'm not that worried about the dollar. Uh, but what I would say is the Fed signal that 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 everything is free today um, if you have assets. And I tweeted this out earlier and it elicited a lot of strong responses on both sides. But mostly, uh, look, if you don't have assets, if you're not uh, someone that can actually take advantage of zero interest rates, this is not your party. And this is financial oppression. And this is this is eroding the purchasing power of much of our country. And, and I don't think it's positive. So uh, I'm with Guy. I share the passion. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, this has been great for people that have assets. I think asset prices are going a lot higher. We're going to talk about the housing market and the builder confidence numbers that were through the roof. Um, housing prices are going a lot higher. Problem is a lot of people can't afford them. And I think that's a major problem in our country. All right. Let's talk more about the Fed and the markets. Uh, joining us now is Mike Wilson, chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, great to have you with us. Uh, Thanks, Melissa. Now that the Fed's outlook for near zero rates is formalized through 2023, what, what does your portfolio look like? 
Yeah, I think um, it was Brian who was saying it. I mean, we didn't really learn anything new today from the Fed. They're just reminding us that they're there, and they're going to continue to do their part of you know what's needed to get the recovery that we would all like. Um, a couple things stuck out to me in today's meeting. I mean, clearly they didn't give us any formal guidance on QE. I think there was some hope that uh, there may be uh, some more guidance forthcoming there. You can interpret that however you'd like. Personally, I think it, the interpretation that makes sense is that, you know, look, QE has not worked in terms of getting inflation, okay? Uh, they've committed to keeping front-end rates lower for as long as it takes. And I do find it kind of peculiar that they guided unemployment to be, you know, 4% is what they think by 2023, but the PCE will only be 2%. So implicit in that, there's, you know, basically they're saying that their policy is going to fail, right? I mean, it's so bizarre, you know, the AIT, you're not going to get above 2% by 2023. That that doesn't sound great. But I think it's a, it's a little bit of gamesmanship. That's what they do. You know, I think as Guy said, I agree. As long as that you know, there's nothing in the headlines that forces them to start tightening, then they can keep playing this game to be supportive. And so that's all good news. I don't, I don't think there's anything bad in that. But I think implicit, the, the bigger message that I see coming from the Fed is that they're not going to be capping yields. Okay? They're shooting for the moon on inflation. They're going to probably end up getting more than they think. And they're not going to cap yields. And so that means the biggest sort of thing for the market that needs to be thinking about right now is that back-end rates could actually surprise us on the upside over the next three to six months as we continue to see this recovery continue. We're bullish on growth. We're bullish. We think inflation is coming. And that means that back-end rates could move. And that will be the single biggest impact on your portfolio construction that you want to have going forward. And that's how we're set up. We're set up for cyclicals. And we're set up for things that are going to do better in a higher back-end market. You're anticipating, though, much higher volatility through the end of the year. What is the primary driver, in your view, of that volatility? Yeah, well, we're already there. So, I mean, obviously, we've already moved volatility higher. And I think that the big driver is the election. Um, anytime you're in an election year, you just get higher volatility. I mean, clearly around the event itself, volatility is pretty well bid. Um, we also have this fiscal deal, which I agree is very important, probably more important than what the Fed is uh, telling us today because the Fed's already all in. And we don't, know, we don't have an answer on that yet. And then, of course, we still have to get through this uh, second wave that we know is coming. Um, I'm pretty optimistic it won't be nearly as bad as the first wave, and I think we can deal with it. Uh, but ultimately, it's uncertainty. So I think we have plenty of events that's going to keep all high between now and, and year end. So, Mike, I, I agree with you. And, and when I look at the Fed, where they upgrade the economic cycle and they lower the unemployment and then they keep rates the same, walk me through again though because the cyclical play and the value play hinges on higher rates so you had mentioned the back end of the curve so can you just explain that again for the viewers yeah i mean it's you know it's, it's really not um overly complicated i think everybody and by the way rates investors understand this better than anyone the only reason why rates are where they are is because nobody wants to challenge the fed right nobody, nobody thinks there's value in a 10-year treasury bond right now or a 30-year treasury bond they just but they're there because of financial repression I think, as Tim was saying, um, and, and there's a general belief that the Fed wants to keep rates lower. I, I don't really actually believe that. I think if, I think if we get a recovery um, that's being driven by better growth and maybe some inflation, I mean, the Fed would be thrilled with that. And I personally think they want back-end rates to go up. If it's not you know, uh, holding back the recovery, that would be very helpful in their ultimate goal of getting inflation, right? Because you can't get velocity in the system with a yield curve that's flat as a pancake. You need to keep it in the curve to get the banks creating money to generate that inflation. So I just think uh, folks have gotten lazy here. 
Uh, they don't really see that all the other indicators that we look at are telling us that rates should be higher. And there's going to be a nonlinear move here at some point. And I think it's going to be a sequencing event as we get fiscal, as we get more evidence that we're getting through the virus, and then we get the election. Those three events collectively is going to look a lot like 2016. And we all know what happened in 2016 when the election occurred. Rates shot up. And I think that's going to be the same setup this time. Mike, thank you. Good to speak with you. Thank you, Melissa. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley. BK, you agree with that? 2016? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree a lot with Mike, uh, with what Mike is saying in terms of I think the biggest risk to this market is that you do get 10-year and 30-year rate shoot up. And what you saw a bit today when the market weakened, you did see some strengthening in, wake, in rates, and in particular in the inflation part of the rate. So not to get too wonky, but rates include what growth is plus inflation. And so the inflation part of rates really started to get bigger today. And so I think Everybody says, ah, the Fed hasn't been able to create inflation. They did all this QE. It didn't happen. They have no credibility when it comes to inflation. When everybody thinks that way, BK wants to be on the other side. And I would argue that I do think we're going to get significant inflation in certain commodities and and certain areas of the economy. Let's uh, get to Boeing now. That stock gaining more than 2% today, and this despite a new House report blasting the company for serious failures surrounding the 737 MAX crashes. Let's get to Philip Bowe, who's got the details on this. Phil, it was a damning report. Oh, very damaging as well, but it's nothing new that's in this report. In other words, Melissa, when you look at this report, and I read it, you come through and you go, okay, that was reported, that was out there. Almost everything has previously been reported over the last 18 months. None of it is good news, and basically what they said was, look, production pressures and faulty design within uh, the software for the flight control system, incorrect assumptions on the part of Boeing, as well as on the FAA. Basically, they blasted Boeing and the FAA. The conclusion of the report sums it up right here pretty clearly. The fact that there were so many technical misjudgments, bureaucratic missteps, and flawed design decisions surrounding MCAS, that's the flight control system, it paints a deeply disturbing picture of a federal regulatory structure in immediate need of robust reforms. That last part there, that is aimed squarely at the FAA and Administrator Steve Dixon, who said, look, we've learned from this. We will make corrective actions when it comes to certifying not only Boeing aircraft, but all aircraft in the future. Don't forget, Dixon, who is a licensed pilot, will go through the new training for the 737 MAX, and he will fly it himself before he signs off on the plane being approved for return to service. As for Boeing and its response to the report, the company says, as this report recognizes, we have made fundamental changes to our company and continue to look for ways to improve. Change is always hard and requires daily commitment, but we as a company are dedicated to doing the work. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, keep in mind that this has been costly for the company on a number of fronts. They've already set aside several billion dollars in terms of special charges related to the 737 MAX. And Melissa, they have had either cancellations of orders or 737 MAXs taken off the books, totaling more than 1,000 this year. So clearly they have felt an impact from this, but as you asked earlier, When you were at the start of the show, the fact that the stock moved higher today on this very, really bad news across the board, is it a bottom for uh, for Boeing? That is really what I think people are going to be asking. Phil, thank you. Phil above. Uh, You know, when you're reading through some of the details of the report earlier this morning and the stock was trading lower, uh, Guy, you thought that was going to be the trajectory of the stock for the remainder of the day. But here we are finishing the day up two, two and a half percent. What is that saying that you have? 
Bad news, good price action. Bad news, good stock action. Uh I mean, it's unbelievable, unbelievable that you continue to reside in my head. You know, what's funny is, and I will answer your question, what what, what Phil was just uh, describing there is very Leonardo DiCaprio in The Aviator, if you recall, flying his own plane. And by the way, Leo happens to be a huge Fast Money fan, so hello, Leo, number one. Number two, you're exactly right. (laughs) Bad news, good price action, and that 158 level in Boeing's been the support level. And going back to, if you recall, total request Fast Money a week and a half or so ago, one of the questions was about airlines on a day you had really negative news, but the stocks traded higher, and we said the same thing. And look at Delta since then. I mean, Delta very quietly, and Tim can speak to this, is trading up to the last levels we saw in beginning of June, when I think the stock traded 38. So, again, to sum up that question, it's a really good sign for Boeing if you're trading the name. Yeah, as a shareholder, Tim, what do you think? Uh-oh. Uh, we're having a problem with his audio, obviously. He's not just lip-syncing or something like that. Um, Brian, <laughs> Brian Kelly, what do you make of the action in Boeing? Yeah, I'll, I'll try not to. I, I won't do my best impression of a mime. Um, <laughs> When it comes to Boeing, you can have it. You can, Tim can have it. He can have all that he wants. I want nothing to do with it. I'm old enough to remember when this 737 MAX was going to fly in Q2 of 2019. This thing will never get off the ground. The world has changed since, this, since the initial part of this has happened, and I don't think their defense side is anything that I want to be involved in. So for me, it's just an absolute no touch. I just don't think there's anything here. Steve, quickly. Yeah, I'm going to say I'll take what uh, BK is selling here. I think Boeing, on a technical basis, guy covered, uh, you know, bad news, good price action. I think this thing can probably ratchet up above 200 in pretty short order. If you overlay all the airlines, they, all the charts look similar, and there's a lot of news flow that's starting to be constructive. The one last thing, Spirit Airlines CEO said, looks for a recovery in the back half of uh, 2021 or the summer of 2021. That's bullish the airlines. That's bullish Boeing. Uh, we got Tim back. So, Tim, why don't you finish your thoughts here? I, I think that the mime was saying, first of all, what would Leo say? Um, and, uh, but I, I think if you look at airlines, you, you've had essentially a 30% move in Delta in, in 30 days. I think with Boeing, the issues really are uh, 737 MAX now looks like it will get certification in 4Q. The bigger issue for Boeing may, in fact, be the 787. And we talk about international air travel and the lack of demand. And so uh, what's been kind of production of 10 a month may, may start to drop. I don't think the MAX um, is really the story anymore. But I think Boeing will be free cash flow positive in 2021 and and even with diminished air travel and i think um that's the more important side of this story so i think for long-term investors of which i certainly have been um i think that's what you want to focus on coming up gold miners getting a boost after today's fed announcement but there is one stock in particular that's really set to shine what options traders think is next for this name and speaking of leo dicaprio what he kim kardashian and uncle sam have to do with 25 billion dollars in market cap losses for facebook today We'll tell you when Fast Money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Facebook under fire today as the social media giant deals with a boycott in a possible antitrust lawsuit. Let's get to Julia Borson, who's got the details. Julia. Well, Melissa, the FTC has been working on its investigation into Facebook since last June, and now the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the agency is gearing up to possibly file an antitrust lawsuit later this year after investigating concerns that Facebook's been using its position to stifle to stifle competition and examining its acquisitions of potential competitors. We got a no comment from Facebook as well as from the FTC on this report, but that still raises the question, what could come next? While a majority of the five-member commission would have to vote in favor of the suit, then potential remedies could range from breaking off a piece of the company to a fine to restrictions on Facebook's operations. Then to mandate any changes, the FTC would have to prove that Facebook violated antitrust law. Now, this conversation comes as a dozen of top celebrities on Instagram abstain from posting on that platform today in solidarity with the hashtag Stop Hate for Profit campaign. The participants, including Kim Kardashian with 188 million followers and Katy Perry with 107 million, are posting messages this week about how they think Facebook could address hate speech on Facebook and Instagram. Now, Kim Kardashian posting yesterday, quote, that she can't sit by and stay silent while these platforms continue to allow the spreading of hate propaganda and misinformation. NAACP CEO Derek Johnson saying, quote, it speaks volumes that there is now widespread concern about Facebook's complacency. The NAACP, of course, is one of the organizers of Stop Hate for Profit. Now, of course, the question is whether this will impact consumer behavior and whether it could drive Facebook to make any additional changes. Melissa? Julia, it's interesting the basis of the FDC uh, potential suit or complaint in that when Facebook bought WhatsApp, when Facebook bought Instagram, these were nowhere near competitors at the time. I mean, at the time, it it seemed, for instance, Instagram, it was purchased, what, for a billion dollars. It had 13 employees. I don't think that anybody ever thought that it would become what it is today. It was not seen at all as a potential competitor. Well, absolutely. And Melissa, it's worth pointing out that the FTC approved both the acquisition of Instagram and the acquisition of WhatsApp. And Facebook has argued repeatedly that it's because these companies were part of Facebook, that because that they had the investment of a giant like Facebook, that they could grow to the scale and reach that they are now. And interestingly, Facebook has you know, been focused on integrating the back end of those apps, allowing people to message between them. And they would say these things don't exist in a vacuum and never would have gotten to that scale if they had been left as, as standalone startups. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson with all the details here. Uh, Grasso, what's your take on this more than 3% decline in Facebook shares? A couple of factors, as Julia mentioned, going on today. Yeah, so I'd be worried about the antitrust, but not so much because we know that they have uh, shirked that off in the stock price. But we've, we've done this boycott uh, before. As long as ad dollars continue to funnel in because they have a limited amount of options to go for the big bang for their buck, you're going to see this thing trade up. We had this issue in July. The stock traded up 32%. I'd be more worried about the rotation out of growth and into value versus uh, antitrust or boycotts in Facebook at this point. If you, if you believe that this rotation is going to happen, though, Guy, I mean, is that even more reason to get out of Facebook shares? I mean, if you're going to weather the storm, so to speak, in a growth name, why weather the storm in a growth name that that might be fighting the FTC at the same time, as well as other regulatory agencies? 
No, that's a fair question. And the pushback would be because valuation is still reasonable. And to Steve's point, advertisers aren't going anywhere. And think about the word Julia used correctly, by the way. She said all these people were abstaining from. I mean, think about that. That, that, that the use of that word tells you everything you know about the power of the actual platform. Again, I loathe everything about Facebook except the stock. And if you have a chance to buy it at 245, which if you remember, that's where we fell from when um, Procter & Gamble announced and all the advertisers announced they were fleeing, I guess, back in June. Stock traded down to 206. That 245 level, which was uh, resistance, becomes support. I don't know if you're going to see it, but that's the level you get in into what's probably an October 16th or so earnings release. I mean, the one-day boycott may, Tim, give you a little bit more time on your hands because you've got less to go through in your Instagram feed, um, but it's hardly a dent when it comes to Facebook and its revenues, just as, as the one-month boycott and even for the rest of the year boycott of some major companies, hardly a dent in Facebook's revenues. Yeah, I mean, look, Guy and I spent most of the day talking about the Cardi B offset breakup and, and just, you know, some of those issues there. But, uh, um, yeah, look, the, these, these Instagram po protests on in some way perversely highlight just how powerful these platforms are. Um, so um, Steve brings up, I think, the more important point. I think Facebook was off 3% because Apple was off 3% because the triple Qs were mm -hmm. off 2% uh, because you, you had this dynamic here where everything is holding just above the 50. These had had massive moves. Uh, if I'm, a, if I'm a, a trader, that's exactly what I'm worried about today. Um, and, and unfortunately, the, the social issues and the highlights to some of the policy that's coming under protest, um, I don't think are going to change. Um, we've seen this before. And again, uh, uh, Facebook is not letting commercial interests impact actually how they run their policies. They've made that very clear. Um, you know, love them or hate them. That's what they've been doing. I don't see it changing. All right. We've got much more Fast Money coming your way. Here's what is coming up next. A record-breaking IPO. But who's really cashing in on the big surge in shares of Snowflake? And later, the Big Ten is heading back to the gridiron, and it's having a big impact on one stock. But is this a true touchdown for DraftKings? We've got answers to that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money, a blockbuster debut for the biggest IPO of the year. Cloud company Snowflake pricing its public offering at $120 a share, closing at $253 a share. That is a gain of 111%. But this isn't the first time we've seen a monster move in a public debut. Let's get to Bob Pisani with more on that. Bob. 
Hello, Melissa. Good to see you. So you think Snowflake up over 100% on its first day is a big deal? Not really. There's been plenty of companies that have had first day pops bigger than that this year alone. And they include, just take a look here, biotech firm Cureback was up 240% on its first day of trading. Software as a service firm, Big Commerce up 200%. Biotech firm Berkeley Light up nearly 200 Cloud company Encino up 196%. Insurance fintech firm Lemonade up 139%, all on their first day of trading. What they have in common is they're either tech or biotech firms. Are they outliers? Marginally. But the first day pop for IPOs this year is notably higher than usual. So the historic first day pop for an IPO is usually about 14%. That's historically, but not this year. The average first day pop in 2020 is 36%. What's going on? It's not that the stocks are cheap. The multiples for a lot of tech stocks are historically high. People are willing to pay more for tech because there's just a higher degree of risk appetite out there. And if you're suddenly inspired to start buying these high-flying IPOs, I would be very cautious about this. Look after the first day. The post-first day returns of other high flyers is not encouraging. So there's been 11 IPOs this year that have popped more than 100% on the first day. They have averaged a minus 1% return from the first day close forward. So be very careful, Melissa, here. Big pop on the first day for some of these. But after that, very difficult to maintain continued momentum. Melissa, back to you. Bob, thank you. Good to see you. Bob Pisani. And who's holding the bag in the aftermarket when these IPOs decline from the first day pop guy? Probably the retail investor. I mean, this has been the story of the IPO market since time began, though, and it continues today. So you wonder why people get exercised when they see things like this. It's exactly that. I mean, I'll say it. I'm I'm not a banker. I never was a banker. And I'm sure I'm going to upset some people by saying this, but there's no way to put it other than the fact that this was completely mispriced. Now, I'm sure the great bankers of J.P. Morgan and Goldman and whoever else, City, I think, was on this deal, and Allen and Company will say, no, we priced it right. You can't tell me that a company that has a $70 billion market cap, which, which opened it, at, you know, priced at 120 and, and tripled almost in price and had to be halted at some point today for price volatility was priced right. And the people watching saying, how is this not a rigged game? I get it. It, it, it. it upsets me as well. But that's the way the business works. And that, to me, is problematic, Mel. Why does it upset? I mean, what's the problem, Tim? They, they thought it was valued at something. Investors in the market thought it was something else. I mean, that's the way the markets work, right? Well, again, though, it's, it's, it's terrible price discovery because um, you have some sense. And, and bankers want to price uh, and the companies want to price a deal that leaves some upside for investors. But, but to be clear, um, this is three times more, at least the guide from last week. And, and so the, the question really is, how can they be so far off in an environment where we know people are paying almost anything for growth uh, and that actually software and cloud-based services? But, but ultimately, I think the real question is, who gets access to this IPO? And the thing that's troubling is, is that this is not a fair game. Um, and, and the allocation process is one that makes you sense um, that there are uh, plenty of opportunities for people who did not deserve big allocations to get them. And, and I realize this is ultimately... 
the dynamic of a company, first of all, that will say, I want a certain institutional uh, investor base on, on my cap stack. And, and those are the people I want in my deal. I don't want certain people. Uh, retail investors uh, typically are not the group that companies want. Um, there's a perception that they're going to be in there flipping those stocks faster. Uh, the reality is uh, that there's a lot of hedge funds that probably flip this thing aggressively today. So again, to me, my issue is with the allocation process mm -hmm. and that it's not uh, it, it's it's not a fair process. Maybe it's not supposed to be. Ask the bankers that, because I think that's what this comes down to. To be fair, there are some companies that actually say in the allocation that they want a certain amount to go to retail trading firms like a TD Ameritrade for those firms to then dole out to retail investors. But Gross, I think Tim brings up a good point in terms of the average first day popping 36 percent this year. That really shows you what this market is these days, the search for growth and what investors are willing to pay for that growth. Yeah, and, and also you, gotta, you have to factor in we're in a different environment. So the offering price is different than the opening price. And all of that is based on interactions with institutions, trying to figure out supply demand, while everyone is filming from a podcast or from an iPad in their home. So it's very different than last year. It's very different, the whole IPO process. Having said that, it really speaks to the reach for growth. So if you have uh, the price action that we saw today, think about it. As Tim said, you want to have, if you're coming out as a public company, you want to put your stock in institutions' hands where they're less likely to flip out of that stock on the day of the IPO. And that's where the whole system uh, might be flawed. But it's worked this way for uh, a tremendous amount of time, and there's always going to be a problem with any system anywhere. All right. Coming up, a building boom. The home construction sector soaring to new highs again today. But is there a hidden risk that could take the foundation out from under it? We'll bring you that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for our move of the day. Check out the ITB Home Builder ETF getting a big boost today. The latest home builder sentiment numbers hitting a fresh new high. Uh, the move in the ITB also helping by, helped by a pair of calls on builders. RBC for one upgrading Lennar to outperform. Evercore also giving an outperform rating to KB Home. Uh, BK, though, you see a potential trouble for uh, the builders here. Well, yeah, that's right. So listen, there's nothing, there's nothing against the builders at all. They're obviously doing really well, taking advantage of this change here. But if you look at what's going on with lumber prices, that's the part that concerns me. So you look at lumber prices up about 170% since April this year, almost quadruple in the last three to six months or so, uh, adding $16,000 to the price of a home. That's all fine and dandy when you're in the middle of this exodus, to borrow a phrase from Bob Marley, the movement of the people out of the cities into affluent suburbs, paying whatever they can so they can get that house. But eventually, the cost of lumber going up starts to be, make homes unaffordable. And this is exactly why I think the people are wrong saying the Fed can't create inflation. This is where they're creating it, right here. You have constrained supply in lumber. You got all kinds of money floating around and people are just buying things like crazy. That creates inflation. That's a problem for anybody who's trying to afford a house, not for those moving to the affluent suburbs. Um, the supply constraint, I understand, but the cost I mean, it, lumber is a relatively small cost when it comes to the cost of an overall home, right? So it would take a lot, for some, and, and especially with labor costs, assuming labor costs are, 
are down now because labor is fairly plentiful um, in general because un- unemployment is high, that maybe the consumer won't feel this. Uh, I would argue that they already are. I mean, it was it was in April that it was 50 cents a foot is what lumber cost you. It's now a dollar a foot or earlier this this week. It was a dollar a foot. And it's not just that you go into your Home Depot. You want to repair your house. You want to put up some plywood. That's going to be twice as expensive as it was before. So, you know, you can look at the big picture and say, yeah, fine, $16,000 on a million dollar house isn't that much. But when you break it down and look at how people actually buy that lumber and what they do with it, it is going to pinch. And again, that's why I mentioned affluent suburbs. When you get outside of that and you get housing prices that are $100,000, that's going to be a problem. All right, coming up, DraftKings taking the crown today. The two big headlines that had traders betting on this name. And later, options traders are spotting a golden opportunity for this miner. We'll tell you which one it is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got some breaking news on TikTok. Kayla Tausch has got the story. Kayla. Melissa, President Trump addressing TikTok at a briefing that is still ongoing at the White House right now. He was asked about the status of a deal, and he said that he's expecting to be briefed by his advisors tomorrow morning and that he has not signed off on any deal just yet. He did say that for national security concerns to be addressed, that it needed to be a 100 percent deal and that if reports are true about the structure that would allow ByteDance to retain a majority stake, then that would not be okay with him. He also was asked a question about whether the U.S. Department of Treasury would in fact be getting a cut of the deal proceeds. And he said the answer is no, that amazingly, I find we're not allowed to do that. He said the lawyers have cracked down on uh, the ability of the U.S. government to collect that payment and expressed disappointment in them doing so. Melissa, back to you. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. We already knew that uh, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle were concerned about a potential deal with Oracle because a structure would remain in place that Kayla had mentioned where ByteDance is a majority owner still and Oracle would be a minority uh, owner. So, Tim, maybe Microsoft, Walmart, maybe that's not out of the running at this point. Look, and... and, and until this thing is signed and inked, it's going to be it's going to be wide open. And again, Oracle doesn't solve the security issue that at least was raised. So this was not a deal. Obviously, this is not a sale. Um, I thought Dan Nathan phrased it very well. It's basically a, a move from you know one one cloud to another um, over here. So um, yes, and I, and I want to be clear though on investors that are investing in Walmart. Uh, you're not investing in Walmart because this deal gets done, and, and therefore this stock shot up to 145 ish. Uh, as as it seemed like they were the front runner along with their partner Microsoft, um, I think the Mike, the Walmart Plus story is part of uh, a longer term move that increases the valuation for this company, whether they get TikTok or not. All right, are you ready for some football? Check out DraftKings trading almost a touchdown higher today after the sports betting company inked an exclusive deal with the NFL's New York Giants and the Big Ten announced it would begin its football season in October. For more on today's big move, let's bring in Jeffrey, senior gaming analyst and Fast Money friend David Katz. David, always good to get your take on this. Um, in terms of these two news items, how should we think about it in terms of what this means for DraftKings revenue? Look, I think whatever. Uh, whatever we can see to expand the amount of content that's available on which to bet uh, is is helpful, is supportive. And, you know, this is a game of revenue. 
uh, and the stock is being valued on revenue. We have it at about 38 times uh, our 2020 revenue estimate. Uh, and so at some point, this will come down to technology and execution. But for the moment, this is about the ability to generate revenue. Uh, and what we've seen DraftKings do, Melissa, is, um, you know, market heavily. Their communications with us have been that they intend to, you know, get there first to capture as many customers as they can and generate as much revenue as possible. And the more football there is uh, and the more relationships there are uh, to, to capture that football, the better. In terms of Big Ten specifically, um, in the past, how much do you think, how much betting can be attributed to Big Ten games? I don't know that it's it's fair to, to, to put some math on what the Big Ten can do in terms mm-hmm. of math. What we do know is that, you know, football in general uh, captures something like 40% of all of the wagering that has gone on, uh, you know, over the past 12 months in New Jersey, uh, just as a reference point. And so the addition of football, um, you know, in the Big Ten, which, you know, uh, obviously draws an awful lot of eyeballs, and as I said earlier, this is a race for eyeballs, um, it is certainly helpful. But I think it's too early to put some math on that. All right. David, thanks for phoning in. Appreciate it. David Katz of Jefferies. Um, Guy Dami, what do you make of DraftKings, especially the tie-up with uh, the Giants, because they, they are after more and more relationships with teams and players? Well, as a Giant fan, I mean, it's clear that DraftKings is starting from the bottom and moving their way higher. But, I mean, it's a good development. This is one thing we have said, and this is not Monday morning quarter. I'm just saying, we have said for a while now that they could stop sports tomorrow and you still buy DraftKings. And I'll stand by that. And maybe it's stretched now, but I do think the stock goes higher. And I'll say one other thing. You know, I think Disney got a stake in DraftKings vis-a-vis the Fox deal, I think. But with that said, you know, they should have, and we talked about this a while ago, they should have been prescient enough to gobble the entire thing up, understanding that it probably doesn't fit under their purview historically. But, you know, sometimes you got to think, I hate the phrase, but you got to think outside the box. Coming up, gold may be off its highs, but options traders are betting on a comeback for the metal. The one name they are watching. Plus, take a look at the Kramer cam. Jim has got his head in the clouds with the CEO of Fox. That is tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The gold miners ticking higher after the Federal Reserve said it has no plans to raise rates anytime soon. Over in the options market, traders are betting on a breakout for one name. Mike Coe's got the action. Hi, Mike. Hi there. We're taking a look at Freeport McMoran, which also happened to be presenting at a Morgan Stanley conference yesterday. It traded over two times the average daily options volume in calls, outpaced puts by over six to one. And the most active options were the September 17 calls. About 26,000 of those traded for just over 30 cents, considerably more than the 5,900 or so open interest we saw. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to go above that strike price by at least the 30 cents or so that they paid. That would mean an increase in the share price of 3% or more by the end of the week. Grasso, what do you think of FCX? Uh, yeah, I, I like the complex. And if you look back in, in August, uh, you know, who else likes the compact, complex is Warren Buffett. So Barrick Gold jumped 12%. Gold Miners is probably where you want to be, get higher beta out of that. So GDX and ETF that holds all of these miners is probably the way to, uh, to, way the, to play gold and the commodity because it outperforms the actual metal by roughly 2 and 3 to 1. It's doing it 2 to 1 this time. 
All right. Mike Coe, thank you for that. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Tim Seymour. Copper. Southern Copper. Steve Grasso. TSE. It's breaking out. Bye, bye, bye. Beakers. Oil Texas T by XLE. Guy. Letter C, Mel. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.